Good evening, everyone. Welcome to LADA. Uh, my name's Joseph Morgan Schofield. Um, I work here along uh, with my colleagues Ben, Saulius, uh, I'm looking for uh, Emma and Alexa and Katerina, where we've got a full house um, in tonight. Um, Thanks for coming to this. This is uh, Lada Screen's uh, Selena Benelli. Um, just for those of you that haven't been here before, I'm just going to say um, a little bit about who we are and how we work, um, and then hand over to the, the program of events. Um, so we talk about Lada as a center for live art, and what that means is that we are uh, a knowledge center, and you are sitting in the center of lots of our knowledge, which is our study room, um, which we think or we say is the world's largest collection, uh, open access collection of materials relating to live art and performance art in the world. It's possibly also the world's only um, open access collection of uh, materials relating to live art and performance art, but it's um, 8,000 things, and for those of you that don't know, the study room is open 10.30 um, till 6, Monday to Friday, and the Wi-Fi fast and there's free tea and coffee so do come and use us um, for your researching needs. Um, we're a production center, we do programs and publications uh, and we're an online center and we disseminate and represent um, ideas, identities and artists through all sorts of channels. Um, I just wanted to flag a couple of things that are, that are coming up. Everything's on our website, and of course, you can sign up to our newsletters and social media, etc. Um, but uh, closing on Saturday night um, is an open call that we've got open at the moment with an organization based in Turkey called Perform Istanbul. Um, it's for a self-identifying uh, female artist uh, to go to um, do a residency in Istanbul, and there's um, supported by the British Council, so that's open till uh, 23.59 on Saturday night. So if you are interested or know someone who might be pleased, there's still time to do that. Um, on uh, Thursday, the 5th of March, we're doing um, uh, Marking International Women's Day with um, a Wikipedia editathon um, looking at uh, the massive gender imbalance in um, uh, the, uh, the massive imbalance in the representation of women and uh, gender non-conforming folk on Wikipedia, um, particularly in relation to the arts. So it's an opportunity to write people um, back into the annals of uh, Wikipedia who've otherwise been excluded. Um, and on Thursday, the 2nd of April, um, we have a very special event we're featuring Cherie Rose, who is an iconic performance artist, um, legendary uh, maker, darling of the LA fetish scene. Um, and she's going to be here in conversation with our very own Martin O'Brien. Um, that's booking up really quick, so if that sounds like it might be your bag, um, or it doesn't sound like it might be your bag, you should definitely come um, and sort that out. Um, but we're here tonight for Lada Screens, and Lada Screens is a series um, of screenings of uh, performance documentation, hard to find films, archival materials, short films and video pieces, um, and they happen uh, with a live event, which is obviously what you're all at, and then uh, a film is also screened online um, for, for the month following the event. So if you're particularly struck by the work tonight or know someone that, that uh, might enjoy it, you can point them in the direction of our website and there is a film to watch. Um, so maybe just say a little bit about Selena's project um, before, get, before we hand over to, to Ben to play the films. Um, and uh, this is just the copy that I took um, off the things that you wrote about it. Um, in summer 2019, Selena Benelli undertook a series of site-specific performances at fallen sound mirrors across the Kent coast. These sonic remains are physical manifestations of pre-war tensions and fears. Initially built to provide defense, they are now succumbing to elemental erosive forces along the, the coasts of England. As relics of an early warning system that never came to fruition, their failure to serve their intended function could be seen to occupy the space of a fossilized mourning for a future that never came. This was also the time where we saw the rise of fascism and far-right ideologies that eventually became the dominant voice in Europe, a time not dissimilar to the one we are facing now. 
What would it look like to be accountable for our failures and carry them into the present? To discuss the eroded memories and fears that are scattered, forgotten and fallen across the south and northeastern landscape of the UK? Could these visible, fallen, silenced concretions of fear and longing for protection help us open up the conversations around the cyclical and tidal nature of our histories and help us think about new ways of being and belonging that are built on difference and diversity? Um, so tonight's going to work, we're going to screen two films um, in Selena's project, Recollecting Fears. There was four performances which took place across the summer um, at four different sites along the Kent coast. We're going to screen um, a compilation film um, that shows elements of each of the performances and then uh, a longer film um, which was made at Warden Point on the Isle of Sheppey, um, uh, which was the third performance in the series. The films were shot and edited by Matt Mahoney-Page. Um, and we're also joined by Helen Davidson, who's going to read a cut-up text from the book that documented um, the project, and that's on sale tonight for the very reasonable price of £10. So if you're interested, maybe Selena will even sign it for you, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you're furious I've said that. but um, uh, Yes, and then after the, after the screenings and Helen's reading, uh, Selena's going to perform an action, there'll be a short break, and then we're going to have a bit of a chat about the project and about the film, and then there'll be an opportunity to ask questions. Um, so that's it. Thanks very much for coming. Um, we'll play the films. Um, I'm joined uh, by the inimitable Selena Benelli. Um, thank you so much for those um, wonderful films and wonderful performances and the, and the um, gorgeous action that you just brought into the space. It's so amazing, I think. Um, so often here we spend all our time talking and thinking about performance and going going out to see it, but it's really wonderful to kind of um, have that action take place in here and also to distill uh, psychic and, and physical remains of the, of the, the project into the space um, tonight. So thank you for that. Um, we're just going to have, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and then we can throw it open. Um, the, to the audience, um, and always just to say that, of course, um, we welcome awkward pauses and uh, clutching for the right words to say um, in the face of this wonderful work. Um, I sometimes think that um, the least interesting thing to ask about is, is the context, but I think that the, the context of these, these objects, these relics, these ruins is so kind of interesting and not something I knew anything about until you explained it to me. Um, I wondered if you could just say just a little bit about what the sound mirrors are and how they function and what they were for. Um, so basically they, they were built between the two wars um, to detect low flying aircraft. So they're meant to really detect Zeppelins actually, not even aircraft. <laughs> and um, they, they weren't very good with um, low flying aircraft because the aircraft became faster and faster and they they could only detect quite low slow slower frequencies so they were superseded by radar and they were built all along the southeast coast of England but um, never used um, they tested them they found that they gave about a, a five minute warning <laughs> which wasn't very much and um, yeah and radar obviously was a lot more efficient and effective so they were kind of left left uh, to ruins and some of them have been restored some of them have crumbled totally um some up north actually there's so some on the northeast of england um there was a council estate that's built around one of them as well um at redcar and 
um, in Sunderland as well. And yeah, um, they, um, you know, the, they they were meant to provide a defence. And I suppose I was interested in these defence mechanisms that that we create both societally as a nation. <laughs> And and also as the personal as well, and whose responsibility and who um, whose responsibility is it to um, and uh, to defend and what what are we defending um, as as a nation that feels under attack in this um, contemporary landscape? Um, so obviously in the context of Brexit and um, in the context of of these defense mechanisms which which are keeping us probably more from ourselves and from each other than from this imminent danger. But I was also interested in the imperialistic um, uh, narratives, I suppose. Um, the, the, the You guys probably don't want to know all of this, but the 300-foot one in, um, in uh, the uh, Dungeness, well, it's actually not Dungeness, it's the Denge, um, which was the last of the four performances. That's right, where I had my hand up, and it's a really long, long wall, quite intimidating. Um, a replica was built in Malta of exactly the same thing, and um, and again, um, this this hope for for you know the imperialistic dreams and this hope. Of defending these these territories that that in fact weren't really <laughs> weren't really part of Britain either, but were yeah in, uh, also in need of defence. So the idea of the uh, the oppressor um, seeing themselves as the victim and um, and needing needing to defend themselves and switching that entire narrative on on its on uh, on top of it yeah over over itself. And sometimes disavowing and not allowing the voices of those who who are the most effective of the oppressed to to actually um, counteract this this narrative. Mm. And thinking, I guess, about how these relics function, kind of as as both metaphor and totem of um, of a particular brand of or a particular understanding of British history and 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 the sense of nationhood and all these sorts of things. And how they very clearly speak to a set of um, political concerns that are that are that have never never not existed, right? But feel particularly um, heightened right now. But I'm kind of curious about, um, I guess, your sort of feeling and relationship to these objects, because watching the performances, and also a thing that I think you don't get much of a sense of in the films is that actually these performances were long, right? These were quite long yeah. durational actions that unfolded over lots of hours um, under the hot summer sun. Um, and at times it seems that you're, um, there's, a, there's a deeply erotic relationship with these objects. At times it feels um, that, there's some, that there's something very brutal. At times it feels that there's a relationship of care. At times grim determination and often all of those things layered together. Um, so I guess I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your feeling and relationship towards these objects and also whether that feeling or how that feeling transformed and shifted as you spent more and more time with these things. Yeah, I mean, I think the first, the first one I developed a relationship with was Abbot's Cliff, which was the first um, mirror in in the very beginning of the film. And um, I mean, initially, 
um, I saw them almost as a concretion of fears, um, of, of defense, of, of this need to, to do something. And, and, and it was just so brutal, actually. Um, but yet, as I developed a relationship with Abbots Cliff, and when you spend time both trying to get to it, um, and developing all these walks and um, spending time with it even before the, the performance. Um, almost, I suppose that, that relationship almost changed, almost like a, I saw it also as a, as a channel, perhaps um, a portal, well not a portal, but a channel between um, both what is below and on, on the ground and what is up in the sky and this idea of of sound and sense sound and the fact that it reflected sound and I started thinking about radar and then I started thinking about radio waves and I started thinking about what what this this need for um, communication is and articulating these um, these these real real um, sensed impulses and thoughts and and fear is is also I think part of the the erotic, if the erotic, as as Audrey Lord says, is um, part of um, this feeling, the space between the feeling of oneself and these these um, deep seated, uh, almost unconscious feelings and impulses that that we often don't gain access to. Um, then, to tell you the truth, they 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 do feel that they're almost concretions of the possibility of of reaching um the uh, the erotic and obviously i'm talking about the erotic not in the distorted view of um of pornography and and the distorted view of how the patriarchy wants us to to feel um but rather within the a source of power and within a source within ourselves that we often repress that we're often scared of and um and and basically i'm trying to to reach something through them and with them, carrying a a past based on fear, but using um, that to hold the fear and to to think about um, not just the, the the positive within the erotic, but also these very primal feelings that we also repress within the erotic um, that that we often don't discuss, and um, yeah, and and holding that fear rather than providing defense mechanisms um, uh, it was part of the project. And I'm not sure if I've actually answered you. Uh, I think I've gone on a tangent <laughs> as well. I think that, uh, but it's a very interesting tangent, so I think it's much much better than the question I asked. No, I um, but I love, uh, I love this sense of, of, um, of channeling and, and in some ways attending to a gulf and also the call of these objects to take responsibility mm. for our fear. Um, and something we've spoken about before in, in relation also to your wider practice is like this thing of how heirlooms and found objects and un unwanted or forgotten things, um, these objects that are quite are often quite um, unassuming or, or would be easily passed over if we were searching for kind of um, performance materials that felt spectacular or excessive um, but within these things these are these objects become ways of generating and finding memory right and that's a thing that drives action um, 
you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I use these objects that, um, yeah, are, are often repetitive, um, of, you know, again and again. I use them until I can use them no more. Um, and looking at, at repetition, um, initially, there's, there's almost a process within repetition of being able to bring the past and the future together um, into the present. And I'm quite interested in doing all of that within something that is expected, but also unexpected. So there's an encounter and encountering these objects in different ways, in new ways. And in a way, I'm trying to articulate something that goes beyond language, because I feel that if we, we need to go beyond the language that I find it language itself oppressive and I'm unable to um, to look at the structures of the uh, look at the, the the structural oppression and to look at power through language often because it often rearticulates that very power that I'm trying to resist. So um, so these these very tangible, very um, mm, easily. I mean, all of us can can have some kind of connection through a hairpin. Um, and and uh, I also believe that this power that that we need to speak to and and also reclaim uh, in a different way um, is something that should be not just self-driven but should be community-driven and um, and we've been made to fear, you know, being being with other people and doing things together and yeah, I'm hoping that um, that somehow within the relatability um, and also within the looking at the discarding of things that actually have still have a lot of um, potential and uh, necessary conversations to, to have around them. Um, I'm interested to hear you talk, um, as I always am, about, uh, about the, the difficulties of language and the refusal of language. and. Um, how one of the things that I love so much about your practice is the way that like um, silence seems apparently privileged and yet when you're performing you're like so your presence is so loud and it kind of reveals that there's no really no such thing as silence or silence is burned through by by all the things that need to be said but can't be said but are somehow being articulated through the poetics of the performance but in the film in the Isle of Sheppey film that we that we saw um, there's this very powerful, and um, I didn't see that performance, but when someone told me about it afterwards, and the first thing they said to me was, the first thing they said was it was brilliant. The second thing they said to me was that Selena used their voice in the performance, and we see it very briefly in this, right? You go inside this structure, and first there's a vocalization, and then there's this word, no. Um, yeah, I guess I don't exactly have a question within that, but maybe if you could just say a bit more about refusals or what or, or what brought you to a point to begin to articulate using language in that sense yeah i suppose to me it wasn't the use of language i mean i've never used my voice in a performance so this was the first time i've used it and it was trying to find a voice um so it's, it was a, an exploration a, a search um for a voice for for things for that I cannot articulate that I still feel very very deeply I think we all feel very deeply about and um, and it was about um, trying to reach vibrations trying to to 
follow something that, that felt instinctual, that felt urgent and that felt necessary. Um, and it, it was an encounter with the voice um, and um, that, that we, all f we all encountered. And I suppose um, there was also a gestural element that you feel of this percussion, trying to use percussion as well. I'm not a percussionist, but um, there's something about the percussion and the vibration and the echoing and the resonance within the building that felt necessary to, to um, both articulate and to respond to. And there was a certain violence that, that felt um, almost um, that needed to be contended with um, and and held and this this refusal of language um, in a way even though I used language um, I used the 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 no um, I don't know how much more I can say about that you can refuse to <laughs> say uh, <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, um, Maybe I'll just ask one more brief thing and then we can throw it open. I think I've had my 10 minutes. But um, <laughs> was to say that another thing that we don't really get a sense of watching the footage like this, um, apart from there's like one moment in the edit where just like th the shadow or somebody's arm crosses the camera. And obviously the camera person is there and you're there, but um, that there was a small audience for these performances. They weren't just performances to camera or performance for Matt um, and Anna who were documenting it. Um, and that uh, in the final performance, and it was kind of touched on in Helen's text, that the performance was that about four hours or five hours in, it was interrupted, um, and uh, by the by the people uh, the by the people who were looking after the MOD's property onto which we had trespassed. Um, and I'm kind of curious about your relation your relationship to an audience because um, not at that moment, but earlier in the day when we. After it happened, you took responsibility for it, and I, and I think you felt that very deeply. But I also felt that we, that we, we had, we were your co-conspirators, and we had chosen to undertake this with you, and we'd chosen in a, in a symbolic and literal way to undertake a crossing into this forbidden ground. Um, so maybe in relation to that, but also maybe in relation to these other performances, what, what it meant to have people there, how that, how they function in relation to this work. I mean, I think audiences and people function, oh, it's a difficult one. Um, I know myself, when I have been in the audience, um, I function as a witness, and we're all witnesses um, to something that, that, that we experience, um, and we function to, to also try um, collectively both form some kind of um, articulated memory, um, that is both sense felt and hopefully carried with us. And, um, and when we talk about performance to other people, it's hopefully not about the, the, the validity or the actions, but um, this, this idea, I mean, I'm really interested at the moment, this idea of the unreliable witness. And um, I find it um, almost quite liberating to, to think that we're all unreliable witnesses and that um, and that gives us so much more freedom to to try and uh, and approach a system that that is very restrictive and um, 
demanding in, in ways that, that curtails creativity and, and openness and diversity and talking through um, the, the, the very reason why we, we need to all perform. So yeah, it, it is in a way co-conspirators, but it's also being responsible and realizing that there we all have different privileges and some of us have a lot more privilege than others. And um, and I think we we need to take responsibility that when we we have more privilege that um, that we have a duty of care to those who don't have the same amount of privilege. Thank you. Um, there's another mic going around that Ben has. So if anyone wants to ask a question, we can pass it to you. Um, does anyone want to? your performance very much and uh, I have a question um, what else do you want to deliver or do you want to express except fear from your performance um, I think um, I don't want to deliver anything and I don't want to express anything um, it's more about um, allowing allowing encounters and possibilities and um, allowing all of us, both people that come to watch as an audience and myself, to all um, um, sense and feel and, and yeah, um, feel something maybe deep within us. But um, I think if I w were trying to express something, put meaning on things and deliver something, that would fall straight back into structures of power that we're used to, both institutional and social structures. So um, ideally, no, I w I'd, I'd like to, I try to, um, I, I would like to, yeah, I d it often, obviously it doesn't always work because, you know, we're also conditioned, so yeah. Oh, I'm up. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Uh, I was interested in become interested in listening in that kind of context and you're talking about the uh, kind of defense mechanism of the spaces and um, tuning into um, what those what those kind of um, structures are designed to tune into and I was just thinking about tuning in in relation to your performance and I got got that sense kind of through the video that there was a a different kind of listening and a different kind of tuning in and experience of the, those spaces. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that in that context of listening. Yes, um, I think I was hoping for all of us to explore listening in a different way. Listening both as being very tactile, so a listening through, through a sensation, through our bodies through our fingers um, that uses various um, uh, senses that, that we're not normally aware of um, proprioceptive senses which which is almost like a listening to the space it, it decides where your arms and where your body is it's it's part of the autonomic system and as you move your arms it can be both it's quite unconscious as well a lot of unconscious action so your your body is unconsciously listening to the space. 
um, and and directing, so you don't bump. Hopefully, if you're like unless you're me, bump into things. Um, there's a listening as well within. Um, so that was with touch, with feeling as well, um, and um, and listening through through a divestment of um, of the, the, the traditional modes of, of what we think a sound could be. Um, so it's also almost deconstructing what is, is a vibration um, and, and how can, can that, that continue. I mean, I, was in I did mention briefly about radio waves and I was interested in how they say that they go on forever um, they just slowly lose energy, but they're, they're still there. And, um, and so the things that we don't, we don't hear, but that we still listen, and a different way of, of being able to listen to, to each other, um, that, that is, I suppose, both bodily, but also I worry about using the word spiritual because uh, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm, I'm not sure where that takes us, but that is of the other, of an ether, of of something beyond ourselves um, that that channels and um, and does something. I just can't that I can't imagine yet, but I know is there, and um, somehow. So yeah, and I probably missed out a whole bunch of other ways of how we listen because my brain just goes blank when I'm <laughs> nervous. Uh, you said something about the symbolism of you apparently flying this blood-stained flag and what kind of message you wanted to convey by it. It's an interesting one because um, the pigment is German red earth pigment, and um, the material is a tablecloth. And I was using wind as a material when I was doing that. And just before I got to this building, I was on that chair, and what I was staring at was this flag of England at the top, and um, so when I got to this action here, I actually didn't know I was making a flag. It, I was waving it that way, and then I just did that to stretch. And I suppose had I known I was making a flag, I probably would have held this action for longer, but I didn't. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that it was caught on documentation. But um, it just it felt like an action that, that did something to my body and that caught the wind and it was unfamiliar but somehow still felt right. And I think there was that imprint of, of seeing something and doing something but it's not always a conscious thing when you're, when you're doing a performance. So no meaning intended but somehow it still comes out. <laughs> I'm interested maybe in this disjuncture between like how this can be perceived as a as a bloodstained flag, right? Um, or that it was missed, that it that is how you missed making it a flag. And also in the ways that 
all sorts of the actions and 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 just the gulf in interpretation i guess really because thinking about how when the performance was halted and the things that you had been doing that we really all and we all kind of understood as as kind of acts of uh eroticism devotion care or careful encounter were m were perceived by the people who looked after the space as um as acts of damage and acts of vandalism and just kind of the gulf there between between um it's kind of it's kind of one thing to to see the documentation have these thoughts but also the immediate interruption of of a different kind of audience um and the, and the different uh the different fears right that they had or the different um things that were charged into the air by that encounter yeah i think i think there was an expectation um and it c it's kind of like that expectation of okay you know of I mean, I was interested also in the idea of who gets permission and who is deemed as a trespasser and who gets to do things and doesn't. And um, and so their expectation was that we were vandals and that we were graffitiing and 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 my expectation. And I almost I kind of felt like I, I actually have quite an admiration for these structures and um, and developed, like you said, this this quite. You know, in the I was asked by Benjamin, you know, what kind of relationship did I have at the end? And it felt like one with a lover where you reveal yourself and they reveal themselves to you. And it was this mutual act of, of, of trying to access a vulnerability within them. And um, and so when they said about, you know, possible vandal vandalism, you know, and I was... I was trying to explain to them, you know, they're all very, these pigments are all water soluble, they will not stain, um, you know, and, you know, and, and yeah, this, um, this, this idea of um, the no, in your writing, the no lasting damage, that was what they surmised at the end, there was no lasting damage. Um, <laughs> and um, which is in contrast to... <laughs> the uh the the damage that as a nation that our freedom is is based upon which lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts i think we have time for one more if anyone wants to you know when you talked about the vulnerability there and you, you mentioned about you were looking and then the flag piece or what was not an intent but it turned out I was quite interested in one scene where you're leaning over and you're doing the arc and then you go even more and there's a point in which your body is and I thought that this you know it's almost like you you you're pushing yourself and thinking that relationship you have with the building and it's balancing you but at, at some point of course you you cannot go any f well you could have gone further but was there a point in which you were thinking, how far can I go with my own vulnerability and the relationship I have with the building, which is supporting me, but is also precarious? So uh, that, that sense, I found that image itself very, very, it stuck in my head, you know, that just I thought how, at first I thought, how, can, how are you actually balancing <laughs> But that, that did actually fascinate me, that, that whole process. But was it sort of, like, did it occur to you at the time? How far can I push this? Or was it more, I have like a, uh, something I want to fulfill here? 
Um, I don't think it was I have something I want to fulfill. And yes, it did occur to me at the time when I was like that, that I might not be able to get back up. And I think that's what, you know, th there was this, you know, as I'm doing it, there's this very, um, nost uh, mm, uh, this idea of, of, oh, I wonder if, if I could go down and, and realizing that, that that is definitely not the best thing for me to do. And I had a lot more hours to do performance-wise. So, um, so when you're balancing on that edge, um, yeah, I mean, I talked about edges and the precarity of the body and the precarity of our bodies when we don't fit into the prescribed social norms, you know, both within gender, both within sexuality, um, both within our actions, and. Um, and there's that tipping point, but there's also the tipping point where you need to take care of yourself as well. And um, I think that's really important. And, um, and so my stopping was just reaching that very edge, being on that edge, but still being able to come back. Cool. I think that's um, where we have to leave it. Um, thank you all so much uh, for coming. And Selena, thank you for this um, wonderful work and this, uh, this, this gorgeous chat. I just want to say thank you to everyone who supported me. Mm. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Bean and Benjamin, who from the very beginning of me doing mad things have always, always, always supported me. Um, I want to say thank you to Helen, who's always come to my performances <laughs> and been part in there with me, and to Ash as well, who's always been there with me. And to Joseph for giving me this opportunity for being part of this this work and for invaluable conversations and feelings, and to all the people who contributed in, in <laughs> <laughs> and to the music, <laughs> all the people that contributed to the book, and to my documenters as well, to Matt and to Anna, um, that made this all possible, and um, and especially to the writers that gave a piece of themselves to, to witness. And, and this is a, a communal witnessing that's in the book and that I, I am so, so grateful for their vulnerability um, within this project. Thank you. Um, it's, our, it's our pleasure and honor to have you here. And uh, the, the film of the Isle of Sheppey performance will be online until the 25th of March. So do revisit it and send it to people you think would be interested in it and, and uh, spread the word. Thanks so much. Um, see you later.